world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Friday edition of The Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danprofshow.com. That's where you get uh, podcasts as well as on iTunes and Spotify. You can also follow us on social media at Dan Prof Show on Twitter, on Facebook, at Prof Dan on Instagram. And uh, let's begin uh, today's show with some positive news. We haven't been able to do that very much over the last couple of months, but there have been some positive developments. Starting with the uh, report from Bill Bryan, Department of Homeland Security, who participated in the Thursday evening task force briefing to explain what uh, his team of uh, researchers has identified about what happens to the virus, coronavirus, under uh, UV rays and in increased humidity, you know, like as attendant to summer months in places where we haven't experienced summer yet, like the Midwest. So in summary, within the conditions we've tested to date, the virus in droplets of saliva survives best in indoors and dry conditions. The virus does not survive as well in droplets of saliva, and that's important because a lot of testing being done is not necessarily being done, number one, with the COVID-19 virus, and number two, in saliva or respiratory fluids. And thirdly, the virus dies the quickest in the presence of direct sunlight under these conditions. And when you, when you look at that chart, look at the aerosol as you breathe it, you put it in a room, 70 to 75 degrees, 20% humidity, low humidity. Uh, it lasts, half-life is about an hour. But you get outside and it cuts down to a minute and a half. Very significant difference uh, when, it, when it gets hit with UV rays. And uh, that significant difference means there's some practical applications from what we know about what happens outside for inside. You'll see a number of some practical applications. For example, increasing the temperature and humidity of potentially contaminated indoor spaces appears to reduce the stability of the virus. And extra care may be warranted for dry environments that do not have exposure to solar light. Not a panacea by any stretch, but uh, just one more arrow in the quiver, if you will. We also have modeling done by sabermetrician Nate Silver. He finds in contradiction to some governors and their modeling teams that all 50 states are either currently at their peak or beyond. Now, there's disagreement here because, again, as I hopefully we've all become accustomed to, you can have experts with the same credentials producing models, trying to answer the same questions and come up with different answers. That is a possibility, despite what the press corps would have you believe that there's only one set of experts and they all agree. But he's silver. Fifteen states are at their peaks according to Silver's modeling. Six states are technically beyond their peaks. Five more had had their peaks occur a week or more ago. Eight states have fallen from 10 to 15 percent from their peaks, which he characterizes as real progress, including states that are opening up like Colorado, Texas. Georgia is in the fallen by less than 10 percent from the peak category as the state that's getting the most flack for moving to open up. Eight states have fallen 25 to 50 percent, including Florida. And DeSantis was getting all kinds of flack this week for reopening the beaches. And then eight states have already fallen more than 50 percent from their peak, getting, again, according to Nate Silver's modeling. For more on modeling with another category of interesting news, where interesting news was afoot this week, uh, and that's antibody testing. We talked a little bit about it yesterday, the study that came out in New York estimating that 
13.9% of New York residents had the coronavirus, which means at least 10x the number of cases actually were reported. And that means the lethality rate is five-tenths of 1% rather than the multiple of it that we were operating under. And this is what we talked about from the beginning as well. Without a denominator, there's a very good chance that the lethality rate is going to be significantly lower than what you're seeing with the first blush of data that goes into the numerator. And for more on on all of this, but uh, we'll start with the antibody testing, we're pleased to be joined by uh, Andrew Bogan, who's a molecular biologist. He's a managing member of Bogan Associates, LLC, and he's a co-author of the Santa Clara antibody uh, study. Uh, Andrew Bogan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Let's just start with the antibody testing and uh, what your study in Santa Clara County found along with the USC, L.A. County, along with the New York, it's all sort of directionally going the same way. A lot more people infected than cases reported, and that suggests a lower lethality rate. And that's important because so much public policy is being predicated on what the lethality rate is. That's exactly right, and you summarized it well. What all these studies, uh, starting with Arden Santa Clara County at the beginning of April and uh, now followed most recently by New York State's uh, large study uh, by the New York State Department of Health, have found is that the seroprevalence, meaning the number of people who've already had the disease based on antibodies being detected in their blood, um, and these are predominantly healthy people who have recovered from disease, are in fact much larger than the number of cases that were known. In every case we've looked so far in California, in New York, Ohio study in the Boston area, in studies uh, that have been done uh, by others as well in Europe, we see that tenfold or larger multiplier of the number of infections being estimated from seroprevalence from the antibodies as compared to the cases that were known and detected by traditional methods on PCR. And that does mean, very importantly, while it sounds a little scary, there might be millions more cases than we knew about, that actually means the infection fatality rate is tenfold or more lower than we had feared, which is terrific news. But then the argument is, is it not that, okay, uh, 2 to 4% or up to 14% in New York that's uh, all well and good based on what you just said, but that still indicates that there is a the overwhelming majority of the population that has not been exposed to the virus. And so there's this huge pool of people that could yet get infected and that could yet put a stress on the healthcare system that uh, so many of the healthcare professionals have been concerned about bending the curve. That's right. And those risks do remain. And I think that it's important to understand we're trying to understand the progression of the disease here. And to know that the infection fatality rate is a great deal lower is very favorable and will be an important new input with much more accurate data into the modeling that's been done to understand what kind of stress we'll see from the healthcare system. Of course, uh, if far fewer people are going to be at risk of fatality and therefore also presumably at risk of hospitalization than we've feared, even significantly larger percentages of the population still not having had this disease yet does not necessarily mean the healthcare system will be completely overstretched. And it certainly doesn't mean it'll be overstretched in every location. And with respect to um, this uh, desire to achieve herd immunity, what is the threshold by which we say we have achieved or we're closing in on herd immunity? What what does that look like in terms of, uh, I guess, percentages? Yeah, I think that's a bit misunderstood. The reality is immunity in the community is a continuum. For every additional person with antibodies who presumably, and this isn't yet proven, but presumably has at least some level of protection, um, meaning it would be harder for them to get the disease again if not um, fully immune, that slows progression. So you know, as those numbers start to approach, like you see in New York City from the state's data yesterday, one out of every five New Yorkers having already had this virus, a million, you know, over a million of them, 
that means that it's going to be more difficult for the virus to spread. There's not any one magic number where people who are talking about herd immunity have achieved this sort of true immunity of the entire community. Obviously, you know, for any individual, the only way to be immune is to be immune. So, you know, 100% is, is somebody's theoretical imaginary goal. But, um, you know, even at 20%, like you're seeing in New York, you'll significantly slow the disease's spread through the community, which is very important. I wanted to get your reaction to the, the standards set by the uh, researchers at uh, IHME, the celebrated model at the University of Washington. They suggest that uh, social distancing measures can only be relaxed once infections drop to one per one million people. At that point, it may be possible to relax social distancing if and only if widespread testing, contract tracing, isolation, and limitations on mass gatherings are in place. Is, uh, is, that, is that a reasonable threshold? Um, that's one model. There are many models. There are a lot of different uh, scientists and epidemiologists uh, who have different opinions about what appropriate levels of risks are for a society with respect to health and also are modeled in different ways with respect to what the expectations are. Any modeling one does really is dependent on the quality of the inputs. So if you're making assumptions about fatality rates that are higher than the reality now suggests, you're going to get very different results from your model than you would if you had a more accurate infection fatality rate. And the same is true for transmissibility. You know, it's another major input. It's how fast things move through uh, a community that are not figure you'll see quoted sometimes in the epidemiologic literature. So there, there are a couple of different key inputs here, and um, I think some of the evidence is suggesting that, um, as you talked about earlier in the show, that outdoor transmission may be impeded somewhat by the summer months. We don't know that for sure yet, but it certainly is the case for some other respiratory viruses and may be the case here. Some early science is starting to point that direction, which is favorable. That would impact that transmission speed. Um, also, the infection fatality rate is typically, for most of these modeling scenarios, a major driver of the outcomes of, of the model. So I think there's a lot of different ways to look at this. Uh, when we come back with uh, Andrew Bogan, I, I want to ask you about some of the criticisms that uh, the Santa Clara study has uh, been subjected to with the methodological criticisms and also uh, some perspective on what uh, the Swedes have done. Uh, more with Andrew Bogan, molecular biologist, managing member of Bogan Associates LLC, co-author of the aforesaid Santa Clara study right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we're speaking with andrew bogan he's a molecular biologist managing member of bogan associates llc co-author of the santa clara study which he uh, wrote about in the Wall Street Journal in an op-ed uh, entitled New Data Suggests the Coronavirus Isn't as Deadly as We Thought, talking about a significantly higher number of people who have had the infection than reported cases, that translating into a lower lethality rate. And uh, your study uh, has been subject to some methodological criticism about selection bias because of uh, using Facebook to solicit um, participants and uh, the relatively small number of those who, who were tested meaning big margin of error. Uh, how do you respond to some of those criticisms? Well, first and foremost, I want to say that um, our data is preliminary. It's in peer review. 
that's true of really all of these data so far. Right. Um, they've been released into the public domain because of their significance with respect to public health, including by the L.A. County Department of Public Health uh, in their study with USC, as well as by New York State's uh, own study uh, that was conducted by the Department of Health for the state in New York. Um, it was released yesterday by the governor. The process continues with respect to peer review. That's an important process. Scrutiny is good. Uh, we welcome it. I think analysis of the methods and techniques and statistical uh, choices, uh, sample um, types and, and things like that are all important. Uh, with respect to our study, we did uh, sample the county um, trying to achieve geographic distribution and a reasonably representative, as, as close as we could get quickly, given the nature of the study. We used a Facebook advertising mechanism to do that. It's very clearly disclosed in um, the preprint that's up on the archive. And um, is it a perfect sample? No. Is it a pretty good sample for our purposes? We think so. Um, and we did do the appropriate adjustments uh, to that sample to try to get it to better reflect the true characteristics of the county. Uh, in the Los Angeles study, they had uh, more time than we did. They ran their study a week or two after ours, and that allowed them to use a traditional market research method to actually contact in advance a purposely selected group of about 1,000 people who were selected for a close match to the uh, characterization um, of the um, representative sample of the county of Los Angeles. So, you know, I think uh, and in, New in New York State, they did what would be called a convenience sample, where you actually simply set up a lot of different geographic sites and just sort of see what the seroprevalence is in people who are out and about um, at the grocery store, or at big box stores around the state of New York. So we've now done this with three different methods and three different studies by three different groups, and we find very consistent answers. So I don't personally believe that we're going to find any significant problem with the sampling here, um, but it's certainly good to be looking at it closely. I wanted to get your um, perspective on the difference between different countries that are somewhat similarly situated in terms of climate, in terms of population, and uh, have such disparate results. Uh, a lot is being attributed to you know those who were more quick to respond with isolation and social distancing guidelines, although the science on that is um, somewhat in debate still, and so, and and even as you see now reports of. Um, uh, a secondary, out, um, perhaps a rebound outbreak in in place like Taiwan that was given high marks for controlling the spread of the virus initially. Uh, but it was an interesting piece going back to the journal about the discrepancy in the fatality per million population between Western Europe and Eastern Europe, with Eastern Europe doing much better than Western Europe. I mean, much better, like, uh, the you know, Spain, uh, 350 million per people, people per million death rate versus the Czech Republic at 12, Poland at five, Romania at 15. And, and you know, the and Spain and, and Italy and Belgium and France and Britain are in the hundreds. The authors of this piece in the journal suggest that one reason for the discrepancy is that the poorer countries of Central and Eastern Europe, fear, fearing their relatively weak healthcare systems would be overwhelmed, move more quickly again, here we go, to enact social distancing rules and restrict movement to contain outbreaks. I mean, does that square with your understanding of how a virus, this virus or any virus moves, that it, the whole difference in the fatality rate or the caseload is all about who was quickest to respond to the outbreak and impose social distancing rules and isolation rules? Well, I think we know that social distancing has an effect to slow the transmission of disease. If you, if you separate people during an epidemic, there will be slower transmission of disease. Unfortunately, if you actually look at the modeling, at least uh, among the modelers that run their models uh, far enough uh, through the expected progression of an epidemic to show its completion, 
social distancing in and of itself, while it may slow the, the spread and flatten the curve, it has very little effect on the cumulative uh, deaths um, at the end of the epidemic. The goal is really to reduce overloading on the healthcare system, which is an important goal, um, especially in a situation where the healthcare access can provide a tremendous benefit. Unfortunately, until we have therapeutics approved for use uh, and, and efficacious for COVID-19, uh, hospitalization per se is not all that effective. Very sadly, the data out of New York most recently shows that 90% of um, COVID-19 patients that end up on ventilation don't survive. So there is not a huge benefit actually uh, being seen in the, in the medical response. So you know, I'm not advocating for overloading hospitals. That would obviously be irresponsible. But I think people are overestimating the impact that, that would have on changing outcomes. It is true that we can slow progression with social distancing measures, but as soon as you stop the social distancing measures, you will see progression of disease. And you know, interestingly, Sweden, which has chosen a different path, yeah. um, they have done social distancing measures on a volunteer basis, uh, but have not shut down their economy in any meaningful way, um, has seen, yes, a little faster progression of disease, as you'd expect under a slightly different regime, but has not overloaded their healthcare system, has seen, like most countries, the same primary focus of the deaths accruing in nursing home populations and the elderly and the frail, people with underlying conditions. The European data now suggests that um, perhaps 50%, according to WHO recently, of all deaths in Europe have been in nursing homes. Um, the life expectancy of people in that uh, institutional setting is not very high to begin with. And I'm not saying it's not tragic and not a serious health concern that we're seeing deaths in those settings and those institutions. It is. And, and we need to be addressing that very aggressively. But it's not the same impact on society as deaths in other groups in large numbers would be. Right. And, and it, it, so it seems like what we're saying to some extent is the debate is not about saving lives versus saving jobs. It's about saving lives temporarily versus perhaps uh, losing jobs temporarily, the other side might argue. I mean, I, you know, well, I, the, lar the larger thing I still say is lives as lives. But I mean, just in terms of the that binary that people want to argue, th there's nothing fine. I mean, obviously, there's nothing final about it long term. But I mean, in the short term, even there's nothing final about moving to, quote unquote, stay inside and save lives. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and the, also the argument that saving lives um, is only with respect to the lives potentially lost to the virus. Right. Is a very limited way to look at lives. Right. I'm very worried about saving lives, but there are also lives. On the other side, not strictly economic concerns, but life and livelihood concerns from the economic damage that's been wrought. You know, we know that for every 1% of unemployment, you get about a 1% increase in suicides. We know that the excess uh, heart attack death rate from the last Great Recession in 2008-2009 was a significant number. We know the deaths of despair from alcoholism and opioid use following that recession were very significant. We, we saw actually in some ethnic groups in the U.S. Um, the first um, reduction in life expectancy that we've seen in modern times. So you know, we're talking about saving lives versus saving lives, right. not saving lives versus saving an economy. Yeah, uh, totally concede that point. He is Andrew Bogan, molecular biologist, managing member of Bogan Associates, LLC, co-author of the Santa Clara Antibody Study, which we'll be uh, watching as it goes through peer review. Andrew Bogan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks to your listeners, too. Take care.
This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Joe Sternberg, writing over at the Wall Street Journal, uh, raises an interesting point. Uh, are the experts right? Uh, I mean, were they right with their first opinion, not their second opinion? The opinion they were giving in February to mid-March, when the official opinion, as he writes, on how best to grapple with the pandemic was very different. The distinguishing characteristic? Modesty. That was the six-week period where we heard, we can't stop the virus, we can only slow it. Uh, He uh, writes, the trouble started in mid-March when, quote-unquote, herd immunity, previously the tacit or acknowledged endgame for most of the world, became a toxic phrase. Critics pointed out that allowing the virus to spread in a controlled manner would cost lives. They presented a stark alternative of a total lockdown or the disaster of Italian hospitals with no middle ground. And, of course, uh, that spread virally among the experts who, uh, let's just acknowledge, uh, are just as sensitive to public pressure as many politicians. The other posture from February to mid-March, that six-week period where modesty reigned. We can't ask the public to lock down indefinitely. That was articulated most forcefully in Britain, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson took merciless flack for trying to delay the sternest pandemic mitigation efforts on the grounds that the public would find it hard to comply for long. And then this feeds really ghoulish responses like, uh, I told you so when Boris Johnson was infected. And it's the same thing with if you have a pastor who held a service and he gets infected, then all the I told you so minders come out, almost spiking the football at somebody being infected with COVID-19. It is really sickening, frankly. I go back to uh, Johan Gusecki. I just keep coming back to this guy, this Swedish epidemiologist, former top Swedish epidemiologist. In this interview he gave that uh, we went through earlier in the week where he uh, said, here's what we actually have a body of evidence to support, scientific evidence to support with all of these mitigation efforts. Washing hands. That's it. Said there's no real science. You can make educated guesses. There's some logical basis for uh, social distancing or wearing masks or some of the other mitigation efforts. But there's not real uh, a real body of science behind this. And I had the same conversation with a, a mathematician slash biologist from a, a university in Shanghai. He admitted it. He admitted it. He said, Gusecki, you know, he said, I, I agree with that, but I'm supportive of the social distancing. I'm supportive of other mitigation efforts because that's our best guess. Best guess. Modesty. I'm trying to do things that I think make the most sense based on what we know, but I recognize and I want to indicate that we don't have 100 percent certainty with this stuff. Well, you wouldn't know that to listen to politicians talk. And it's not right. Tell me what you know and present the basis for the knowledge. Fine. And tell me what you uh, think is true based on certain assumptions or certain indications but 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 admit what you don't know is true as well or admit some some hesitation in terms of uh, speaking with uh, uh, such certitude and then that, why why is that because I want to play gotcha no so that we make more informed decisions 
so that we have a better understanding of the risk assessments and the risk associated with the different choices before us. In other words, so we behave rationally. Uh, and this goes with all the modeling, too. We heard from Governor Pritzker in Illinois yesterday about uh, the uh, models they have say that Illinois caseload won't peak until the uh, first week of March, uh, first week of May. That's revised back from the middle of May. Well, Nate Silver, he's an econometrician, sabermetrician. Uh, he looked at it. And he's concluded. Uh, all all 50 states are either currently at their peak or beyond their peak. 15 states, including Illinois, are at their peak. Uh, Silver notes the testing has been murky in California, which he also claims is at its peak. Six states are technically beyond their peaks, but the peak has come within the past week, so it's hard to say it's over yet. Five more states have peaks that occurred a week or more ago, uh, but have uh, fallen by less than 10% from the peak, including... Georgia, which is the center of so much controversy. Eight states have fallen by 10 to 25 percent from their peaks. Eight states have fallen by 25 to 50 percent from their peaks. He goes through it all. But the upshot, all 50 states either add or pass their peaks. So his uh, data analysis differs from the modelers that Governor Pritzker is using. Just to cite an example, again, to undermine this. Hey, just listen to the scientists. Just go where the data leads. Guess what? There's a lot of people with the same credentials that are making very different projections. When we come back, we'll start there with Dr. John Lee, National Health Service pathology consultant, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're pleased to be joined now by Dr. John Lee, retired professor of pathology and National Health Service pathology consultant across the pond there in Mary Old England. Dr. Lee, thanks for joining us. Um, so uh, you have written uh, on uh, some of these matters in um, Spectator, as well as you gave an interesting interview for Spike that I want to get to. Why don't we start with masks? Because this is the new pronounced mitigation tactic that must be employed by everybody. Uh, we just had it imposed in Illinois yesterday. Your uh, understanding of the science behind masks as a preventative tool? Well, I think, I mean, a lot of the public debate on masks and, you know, other aspects of this virus, I think it's a, a bit plagued by just a lack of understanding, a lack of imagination, if you like, about what viruses are and how they work. I mean, these are incredibly tiny particles. Um, you know, it's reckoned that a, a person with the virus, when they're infected, may get rid of 10 to the 11 of these particles a day. So that's one with 11 noughts after it. That's a huge, huge number. So these are really tiny particles. And the question is, is whether wearing masks is actually doing anything for the viral spread or is basically just a reassuring measure that allows people to feel better but doesn't actually do much. And if you look at the science in this, if you, if you look at what masks do, and people have done experiments also to see whether viruses get through masks and whether they're behind or outside, I mean, fundamentally, there isn't any evidence that these things work in public. They, they might work a little bit in a lab setting, but when you put masks on people's faces and they walk around and they scratch and they sneeze and they you know, move them around, it, it just isn't, there isn't any strong evidence that they are really doing very much. So it's sort of arm-waving rather than science to say that we should wear them in public, in, in my view. 
Well, because the other thing is, if, if when people wear masks that they feel safer behind masks, they may well change their behaviour and so, um, you know, not be so bothered about you know, keeping a slight distance from other people and all these other things that we've been recommended to do. And, of course, the failure of imagination comes when you're thinking about what people do when they go home. They, they take the masks off and, and they, they you know, put them on the chair and as you do that, the air goes around the mask and anything on the outside of the mask will go into the air and you might breathe that in and you run your hand through your hair and you've got virus particles in your hair. I mean, scientifically, and, and sort of when you imagine actually what the particles are and how they get around, it, it just doesn't seem to make much sense to me. And so it doesn't surprise me that there's no scientific evidence to support it. It would be quite difficult, I think, to design experiments to really find scientific evidence to support it because you've actually got to, you know, somehow measure a great big population's worth of people and show that wandering around wearing masks is different from wandering around not wearing masks. And given what people do and how diverse that is, I think it would be very, very difficult to prove it one way or the other. Um, and I think one thing I would like to say is, is that we've been locked down on the basis that it's better safe than sorry to lock ourselves down even when we don't know that it does any good. But actually, when you look at what the lockdown is doing to the economy, to people's livelihoods, to their lives, it isn't better safe than sorry. It looks pretty, pretty certain that we're worse off having locked down. It's causing more deaths and more illness by locking ourselves down than the virus would be. So the better safe than sorry principle is, is not one that is scientific. It's actually anti-scientific, and in my view, it's dangerous. Well, uh, speak to that a little bit more uh, with respect to there no be, being no scientific basis for the effectiveness of lockdowns. Well, again, if you imagine how tiny virus particles are and how they get around, I mean, they get around by being sneezed into the air and coughed into the air and spoken even into the air in droplets. And there are just gazillions of these particles out there. Now, we don't exactly know what the infective dose for this virus is. Is it one virus? Is it 10? Is it 100? But the bottom line is when every breath that you're breathing out when you're infected has 10 million virus particles in it, the fact is if you go into a shop, you're breathing the same air as everybody else is, whether you're socially distanced from them or not. So the idea that somehow staying two, two metres away from other people, which is the rule in the UK, when you're in a shop is going to stop you breathing the same air, it's going to stop you catching a virus if it's there, is well, just on first principles to me, seems just implausible. Better, than, better safe than sorry is the science behind masks. Better safe than sorry behind lockdowns. Also, better safe than sorry behind school closures, even, uh, to, even though we know uh, we have a lot of data in terms of uh, the, uh, the, the relatively low incidence of young people getting it or getting, and getting it uh, yeah. in, in any sort of, sort of serious way. And now we have a study out of The Lancet, which is a respected British medical journal, that uh, suggests that they're, uh, well, the, I'll read from the summary. Policymakers need to be aware of the equivocal evidence when considering school closures for COVID-19 and that combinations of social distancing measures should be considered. Uh, they looked at SARS and they looked at um, uh, uh, the, the body of evidence that's available regarding the impact of school closures in, in controlling transmission. And there's just no evidence to suggest that it does. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, my view is that, that schools should go straight back. I mean, I think, I think it's wrong. I think we're harming our kids. I think you know, their education is being harmed, their social development, their psychology is being harmed. And as you say, there's absolutely nothing to suggest that doing this is really saving lives. And I think one of the, the things in the UK, certainly, and maybe around the world, uh, that we need to get better at talking about, I mean, I've, I'm, I was a pathologist by trade, so I've, I'm used to dealing with uh, you know, disease and things that cause death but you know there's more to life than death and you know you have to balance up all the all the harms uh, that are being caused and a, a lot of the you know a lot of the um the, the consequences of this lockdown who are the people they're affecting 
mostly they're the old people who've actually, or older people who've worked for their whole lives and saved up money to sort of enjoy their retirement. And now they're having their retirement taken away from them on the basis of what protecting themselves. And I, it seems to me that when there's a serious risk out there, we should absolutely have a sensible public debate about what these risks are and, and what the extent of those risks might be. I completely agree with that. But, but really, the only justification for the lockdown that I can understand both here and in the States and in many other developed countries, we can't put this thing back in the box. The virus is out there. We're going to be living with this virus now forever until it you know, goes extinct of its own accord, which probably won't happen. So we're going to be living with this virus. So the only reason for the locking down was to prevent a wave of death that was going to overwhelm our health services. And the thing is, there have been pictures of places being very, very badly affected by this, like New York um, and like, like uh, Lombardy in Italy. But the thing that isn't so well known is that right next door to Lombardy in Italy, the uh, region of Veneto, they had a different way of managing the cases. They only admitted about 20% of their cases to hospital. Lombardy admitted 60%. And the fact is, 50 miles away from those pictures in Lombardy, you had in Veneto, empty, or not empty, but ITUs that were only half full and hospitals that weren't being overwhelmed. So the point is, if we've now got to the stage where our health services have adapted, um, and that's one of the things that wasn't mentioned in the models, they didn't uh, make any assumptions about whether or not health services could rapidly adapt. But if our health services have adapted so that we can now deal with the number of cases that are out there, it seems to me that the actual rationale for the lockdown has now gone away. I mean, the fact is we won't stop people who are going to catch this virus eventually catching it and if they're susceptible dying of it. That is going to happen, and we all know, you know every day we step out the door, we, you know, there, there are germs in the air, and if our number's on one, uh, we're probably going to get it. He is Dr. John Lee, a retired professor of pathology and National Health Service consultant across the pond in the UK, consultant pathologist. Dr. Lee, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. We're going to rock this town, rock it inside out. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. When you induce a panic, you never know how and where people will scatter. For so, uh, for all of you global citizens, for the uh, open borders crowd that uh, is now living in a world where there's a renewed recognition that borders do matter, and countries will enforce them when they need to, when it's not uh, you know, politically popular to not to oppose a particular politician or to service a particular narrow constituency. So listen up to David Beasley, who is the executive director of the World Food Program, which is uh, UN-backed, feeds 100 million people annually, according to their data. Listen to what he's saying about the potential global famine we're on the cusp of because of distribution channel issues, because of financing, because of shutdowns. And tell me again about how you can divorce concern for public health from concern about economic health. If that supply chain breaks down, in other words, we can't move goods and services, we can't move supplies, we can't move food, then obviously uh, people will not not die just from COVID, but they'll die also from starvation. And this is not a sky is falling, sky is falling scenario. I mean, this is a, a reality that we are facing because we now know that 135 million people on earth are literally bro- walking toward the brink, so to speak, of starvation. Out of that 135, mm-hmm. we keep we feed about 100 million, but 30 million depend totally on us. So if the supply chain breaks down or if the money falls apart, so to speak, 
then, you know, if 100 people don't get food, 100 people don't live. So it's a very bleak situation. And so we're very, very concerned about this. Now, are you willing to say lives versus lives, some lives versus other lives with this uh, breakneck, hell-bent attitude on lockdowns, no other considerations given? You ready for the body count that uh, may come? If what David Beasley is concerned about comes to pass, it's just more complicated than uh, some would have us believe, isn't it? Than some want it to be, isn't it? Speaking about being your brother's keeper when uh, you're confined to your home and speaking of shutdowns as well, spending time with the family. One thing you might enjoy is watching uplifting movies that affirm your faith with all the choices that you have. I have an answer to what you can do that is uplifting, number one, and affirms Faith of the Faithful, number two, Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus. It's a documentary which presents convincing evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus is true. This is uh, brought to us by investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt, Israel, and uh, throughout the world to search for answers to one very important question. Did the stories like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen that way? The results of his investigation are monumental. Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus at Home, along with the other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com, and there's three different films in the series. Exodus, The Moses Controversy, and The Red Sea Miracle. And again, you can watch them at PatternsofEvidence.com. It includes a panel discussion moderated by Gretchen Carlson, featuring our friend Dennis Prager, our friend Eric Metaxas, as well as Anne Graham Lotz. Watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and other stories in the series that I just mentioned. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com to do that. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. You know, maybe we don't need a private sector anymore. I, uh, maybe it's that's passe. That's so 20th century. Uh, we need to rethink uh, ordering ourselves around just government because uh, what we see is uh, two very different things happening in the public sector versus the private sector. And what we hear from the public sector is very different than what we're hearing from the private sector as well. Uh, yeah, there are sort of sops to this idea. I know people are being hurt economically, but it's sort of dismissed very quickly. There's no consideration for what we've talked about in terms of how Economic devastation has public health implications, both systemically, like our health care system. A poor economy doesn't support a robust health care system. hate to break it to the politicians, most of them, uh, number one. Number two, just in terms of um, the idea that existence is something more than bio, just biological existence, there's just, there's just not much consideration given to it. It's uh, What did we hear yesterday? carping from governors about what the federal government is or isn't going to do to bail out state and city governments, the delay on getting the refill on the payroll protection program, the uh, uh, horror of Brian Kemp moving gradually to reopen portions of Georgia's economy. What is being said by most politicians and amplified by most of the media is 
completely at odds with what you're hearing from people who know a thing or two about uh, the sort of devastation being wrought on our private economy. And I know this is going to come as a surprise to many, but you don't have government without a private economy. I, I, you know, I mean, Dan Henninger's piece in The Wall Street Journal yesterday that economic suicide is not normal behavior. That used to not be a controversial statement. It is now. So in the wake of this sort of economic catastrophe we're inflicting on ourselves, I mean, if you consider 26 and a half million people being displaced from their jobs in five weeks, if you consider that a catastrophe. And in the face of that, what you're getting from the left are Marxist tropes. For more on uh, this whole matter, somebody that I was uh, referencing who does know a thing or two about markets and our market economy is Alan Lance. He's the president of Alan B. Lance and Associates, an investment advisory company located in Toledo. And uh, there was a good uh, discussion with him at memorialized at marketwatch.com, uh, which uh, reminded people that uh, Alan Lance is somebody who benefited. I mean, benefited because he made good strategic decisions during the 87 and 2008 downturns, recessions. Um, so he's been through some of these, as you say, he's been through a, a lot of things and he has and he's come out the other side. So it may have some advice that should be taken by the political class. Alan Lance, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Uh, one of the things you say is uh, we should um, manage our expectations. The suggestion that a V-shaped recovery, maybe even a U-shaped recovery at this juncture with what has occurred is improbable. Yeah, I think uh, V-shape is going to be very difficult. Uh, the next 45 days are critical, you know, as, as we open up parts of Georgia here and, and our state here in Ohio is planning to open May 1st. That has to really be done and, and executed almost to perfection to, to get, uh, you know, a V-shape. And um, I just think with the country not united on a political standpoint, as some of the things you were referring to before uh, my introduction, uh, it's going to be a difficult environment to, to see a V-shape and that we're back growing like we were. You know, the good news into this is January, February, the economy was very strong. Housing was even looking stronger in February. You know, the bad news is all parts of, of the warnings we had in 87, and 1999 with the, with the tech bubble and and the financial crisis of 2008 are parts of this crisis, this pandemic. You have the global aspect reaching all parts of, of the world, even more so than 2008, 2009. We're starting to get record high valuations like like we saw with the tech telecom.com bubble in, in uh, 2000. Basically, you had the unforeseen event in 87. It was portfolio insurance and and people thought that was a way to return their money if if the market went down and they found out that was a, a flawed and here obviously we got blindsided with the uh, pandemic so you've got the combination of all three of these with this crisis unfortunately and then you add the added blow of uh, our energy sector and what Saudi Arabia and Russia have done to really try to uh, as far as just destroy our independence in, in energy. And that's the reason we really don't see a, a V-shape. And, and the rally that we've seen here in the past couple of weeks, which have been really impressive if, if didn't heed our advice and, and took profits at record highs in January and February, I would lighten up if you're overexposed in, in um, you know, equities. Particularly, it's going to be hard for us. Can you imagine the developing markets, how, how long it's going to take for them? So, right. so there's a lot of strategies to invoke, invoke, and I think that's why the next 45 days are critical. With respect to um, the market, you have, you've had a number of people saying 
it's uh, remarkable that the market isn't uh, down, you know, another 20 to 30 percent from uh, where it sits today. And uh, obviously it's being inflated by federal uh, by the, the action of the Fed. But I mean, is, is that your position, too, as sort of you're indicating about artificial highs that uh, we haven't seen the, the bottom of the trough yet? It's hard to say. I mean, nobody's lived through this. So, so uh, you know, again, if, if it's executed through perfection, you know, uh, we, we have some positives, you know, with all this flooding, you know, and, and deficit spending, um, uh, you know, interest rates are, you know, near zero. You know, in, in 2007, when we warned going to a money market and it's paying 5% here, you know, people wish they could get 5% on their cash right now. So, but I think it, it's just an environment that, um, you know, it, it's, gonna, it's definitely going to be uh, challenging. I, I think the rally here you see we consider as a gift if, if you are overexposed and, or if you have asset allocation where you have a little bit of everything and you thought uh, we go down in one area, you'll go, you know, up and make make up for it in another area. I, I think, you know, uh, too many people avoided the cash component. So if you don't have cash now, I think, uh, you know, whether it's real estate, whether it's the stock market, whether it's your business, I think liquidity is going to be key. So use the strength of people chasing stocks and, and worried that they're going to miss out on a V-shape and, and maybe lighten up, especially if you're overexposed. Do you see another sector in the near term uh, in a, as precarious a position as the energy sector right now? Yeah, unfortunately, Dan, that's a great question. You got uh, retail. You know, I think retail is going to change. Um, you know, even real estate, and, and you know, we have too much retail. We have uh, too many office buildings. Uh, we sold a lot of our real. We sold all of our real estate going into 2007 at record highs, and and we sold a lot of our real estate um, as as far as this past year or two. Uh, and and the interesting thing is, every almost every one, I think all but one, were buyers overseas. So, so, so they really wanted, and they were paying record levels. But uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to own a, a, a large, uh, you know, office building right now. I wouldn't want to own uh, box retail, uh, you know, even restaurants and what have you. I think you know they're not going to be able to pay the rents that they did in the past. So the consumer um, is going to be key here, and you got to have that confidence. And that's where you have that fine line about uh, you know opening up the economies, which I think need to be done. We're calling it economic suicide governance, the new ESG investing, and, and it's, a, it's a situation where it, it has to be done, but it has to be done right, and that's why you know these next 45 days are critical. Yeah, yeah, it was, it's 45 days. Why 45 days? Well, that's going to bring us into the first week of June, and by that time, we'll really have an idea if, if the consumer has the confidence and if we can get back on track, because the consumer is such a vital part of our economy. And in 2008, we, you know, the U.S. economy and the consumer and the, actually the Chinese uh, Chinese economy were the two, as far as engines, that really brought the global financial uh, recession uh, and crisis out of, out of the brink, including the flooding of, of uh, this liquidity. So we're, we flooded the liquidity now, but now we need somebody to spend and we need to get things back on track. And, and that's why opening up these economies are critical and doing it in, in a way where you're motivating and, and uh, where you're reestablishing establishing the confidence in our consumer. And, and I think the money is there, you know, the attitude's there, uh, you know, it's a pen up build, build up. It just has to be done in the right way. And that's what we have to monitor. We're monitoring that now in Austria and Germany opened up this week. And obviously it's harder in China to get, get information. Uh, we monitor that as best as we can, but you know, it, it's a learning uh, situation for, for everybody. And, and if we adapt, uh, we got such good communications 
compared to the last pandemic 100 years ago. It's not out of the cards. I just think it would be more of a U if it's done correctly. And I'm hoping I'm wrong, and it is a V, but, but I'd rather be on the conservative side with with our investors and gradually get in. There, there'll be some winners out of this, technology, healthcare, and those are the areas we're concentrating in. But to say, you know, I want every sector and I want, you know, asset allocation, you know, these models that, that uh, so many, uh, you know, are, are in tune to, uh, I just think is wrong in, in an environment like, 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 like what we have right now. He is an acolyte of storied investor, Sir John Templeton. He's Alan Lands, president of Alan B. Lands and Associates, an investment advisory company located in Toledo, Ohio. Alan Lands, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insight. My pleasure. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, we move now to a, a topic of much interest, which is uh, innovation in biotech, with, uh, as uh, FDA Commissioner Dr. Hahn has pointed out, they've authorized some six, five or six dozen clinical trials with uh, potential antiviral therapies for COVID-19. There's another uh, couple hundred that they're working through in terms of giving the, uh, their imprimatur on those clinical trials. We've heard, you know, mixed anecdotal stories and studies, observational studies about uh, uh, some antiviral possibilities that have been talked about a bunch, including hydroxychloroquine, including remdesivir. Some bad news about remdesivir yesterday as Gilead announced a uh, premature conclusion to uh, their clinical trial for lack of participation. But lost in that story was also the indication that Gilead saying remdesivir did hold some encouraging results for its application, particularly early on in the illness. So we wanted to get some perspective on uh, biotech and innovation within biotech now that it's it's okay to embrace big pharma again. Pleased to be joined to help us do that by Tom Delenn. She's the president for law and policy at the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. Tom, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me. I hope you and all your listeners are doing well and staying safe. Yes, thank you. And so, um, you know, give us a, a handle on uh, some good news in the in the area of uh, antiviral vaccine, um, uh, t- you know, accuracy of testing. You know, we're, we're looking for where are we really making progress so that we can sort of check a box and say, you know, this is being handled or it's well on the, its way to being handled. And we're going to answer one of the questions that we don't have an answer to right now. Well, you know, the good news is is that industry working with government and, and non-governmental organizations, both domestically and around the world, are making unprecedented progress. I mean, we've never seen anything like the response that we've seen to date from, from industry. We have more than 300 programs, drug programs aimed at going after COVID that have been launched just in the last 14 or 16 weeks this crisis became uh, so evident. That is, you know, unheard of. You need a lot of stocks on goal. In our industry, you need a lot of stocks on goal to get some across the finish line, right? right. And um, we know that there's a high risk of failure. We know that drugs are not going to work for everyone. We know that vaccines will not work for everyone. 
We need lots of approaches, and what we're seeing is exactly that. We are seeing so many different approaches being taken by small companies, large companies, not just large pharma, but a lot of programs being driven by smaller companies that Bio represents in particular. We're really excited about the innovation, and the good news is we've been ready for this. The United States has invested in an infrastructure to do exactly this. And I think people miss that. And a lot of it has to do with the system we have in the United States, drive innovation and investment, private investment in innovation. You don't see that around the rest of the world because of their healthcare systems and their socialized price controls. What you see in the United States is incredible capital that is ready and has been investing for years in the kind of infrastructure that we need to be able to respond quickly to a pandemic like this. Do do you have any particular disposition on the uh, antiviral therapies and clinical trial? I know uh, Dr. Hahn, again, FDA Commissioner Hahn, said clinical trials with respect to hydroxychloroquine, we should have an answer uh, perhaps late next month. In other words, the clinical trials will have been completed, analysis done, and a determination made categorically as to whether or not this could be an effective treatment or not. Remdesivir is, is a question mark. Some encouraging news yesterday. More encouraging news about convalescent blood plasma. Any perspective in the antiviral therapy space? I'm not a scientist, and I don't want to kind of talk about particular um, approaches because I think what you're going to see, Dan, is that the, the data is going to be all over the map, right? I mean, we are trying to do this in real time. One of the unique things about this pandemic and trying to do drug development is you're doing it in real time, and it's very hard to control for clinical trials, right? Most of these trials that people are talking about aren't really even true trials in the sense that we've always thought of placebo-controlled, double-blinded, you know, randomized trials. These are people who are really sick and are in hospitals, and they have so many comorbidities. It's very difficult to make determinations off of this in real time. So we're going to need to build up a, a base of data over the next, you know, I think six to eight weeks, we're going to start to see a lot more of the data come in. And we'll be able to then start to look at that across all of these different trials. And I'm putting that in air quotes. Some of them are real trials. Some of them would not be considered real trials. And we're going to have to look at that data combined with what we're seeing in patients in real-world outcomes and then try to make our best guesses about what is going to work in what types of patients and when. As you mentioned, some of these products may be better for people before they into the hospital when you know some of them may by the time the, the, the virus has advanced and replicated that much to put somebody in the hospital and, and that they can't breathe enough on a ventilator some of these products may not work at that point but they may be very effective for people who we know have been exposed and are infected and are just beginning to get symptoms and we can keep people out of the hospital and that's tremendous right if we can do that and we will save lives so all these products are going to operate a little bit differently there could be no, based on just epidemiology, we know based on human biology, that they're all going to work differently in different, in different types of patients. And so we're going to need a lot of shots on goal. Our industry is prepared to do that. We are doing it every day. And some of them are going to work. Some of them are not going to work. Some are going to work for some people. Some are going to not work for others. It's just our industry. It's what we have to live with every day. But now we're doing it in real time with real patients that are you know, at risk of dying. It's a very serious issue. And it's something that we are working night and day, the researchers in our company are working night and day to try to solve. And as, a, as an attorney, as a former uh, head of public policy for Bio, uh, and talking about uh, private and public partnerships here with the development of, uh, of uh, treatments and vaccines and testing and all that, are there lessons that you hope will 
have been learned during this crisis that should extend beyond the crisis in terms of the regulatory environment for innovation in the biotech space? One of, it's a great question, Dan, and one of the things that bio in particular is working on is how do we think about this moving forward, right? The good news, right, is that we are doing things now in ways that used to take months and it's going to take weeks. It used to take years, it's going to take months, right? We've had to do that because of the, the pandemic and its, and its urgency. But what we're learning, and we should be able to keep moving forward with this in terms of future outbreaks, is that the systems we're creating now to deal with information sharing, collaboration, partnerships, um, those things we should keep in place. And we're going to have to have government support to do that because private industry doesn't just, doesn't just keep these kinds of things up and running you know, because there might be a pandemic in, in another three or four years. right? So the government's going to have to build support mechanisms to keep these systems going so that we don't have to then recreate the wheel the next time there's an outbreak whether it's next year or the year after. So information sharing and collaboration, data sharing networks, we're building them on the fly right now. We've got to keep those going uh, even past this pandemic. That will help save even more time off the next time around. So instead of maybe, you know, 18 months to a vaccine, we can do it in a year. Maybe instead of, you know, six months to an antiviral, we can do it in three months, mm -hmm. right? So it, it really, we, we had a bit of a gap, right, getting, getting up to speed this time around because we were building as we were going. <laughs> Let's build now for the future, and then that way we can jump right in the next time this happens. He is Tom DeLenge, President for Law and Policy at the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, Bio. Tom DeLenge, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. I uh, appreciate your time. And again, everyone, please stay, please stay safe and stay healthy. Thank Thanks. you, sir. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, reviews are coming in for Mitch McConnell's idea that perhaps he would be uh, supportive of the idea of uh, creating a bankruptcy provision for state government so that states that are uh, essentially collapsing under the weight of unfunded pension liabilities and health care liabilities, mainly New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Connecticut, Kentucky, could uh, reorganize their obligations and um, and restore something approximating solvency and viability going forward. Well, uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo weighed in on that. Not a fan. Senator Mitch McConnell goes out and he says uh, maybe the states should declare bankruptcy. Okay? This is one of the really dumb ideas of all time. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I said to my colleagues in Washington, I would have insisted that state and local funding was in this current bill because I don't believe they want to fund state and local governments. And not to fund state and local governments is incredibly short-sighted. They want to fund small business, fund the airlines. I understand that. But state and local government funds police and fire and teachers and schools. How do you not fund police and fire and teachers and schools in the midst of this crisis? Right. Um, 
of course. The only thing state governments do is fund and local governments is fund teachers, police and firefighters. This is the sophistry of the scoundrel uh, in terms of those political hacks of which Andrew Cuomo is one of their ilk, who for generations have participated in running up all these obligations, uh, assuming that they could continue to borrow against tomorrow to pay for yesterday and make it somebody else's problem, keep the House of Cards off for one election cycle longer. And now that's no longer possible. And it's the same way in Illinois and the other woefully managed states. And uh, Andrew Cuomo's right. I would have insisted that they give us money up front, the blank check sort of block granting that we want. Of course he would. They don't want to bail uh, us. They don't want to bail out states and localities. Right. They don't want to bail you out of generations of bad decisions that you're trying to get bailed out of under the auspices of COVID-19 disaster relief. Uh, President Trump uh, didn't take a firm position on it, but uh, didn't reject it either. We're working with uh, senators that are on the other side of the issue, and we'll see what happens. But we're looking to do what's right for the people of this country. We're looking to do what's right for a particular state, and we'll see what happens. But it's certainly the next thing we're going to be discussing, because some states have, in all fairness, John, some states have not done very well for many years, long before the virus came. You know, you can't blame the plague, this horrible plague that came in, and all of a sudden, you know, they can't blame that. You look at Illinois, he's got a lot of problems long before the virus came in. Yeah, he does. Uh, for more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Steve Malanga, who is a uh, expert in this space. He's also a contributing editor to City Journal and senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Steve's been writing about this topic for many, many moons, and all of a sudden, per a pandemic, it's become real to uh, the governors and the mayors and by extension, the residents of the worst governed states in America, hasn't it, Steve? Well, you know, it certainly has, because um, for one thing, uh, it, it's kind of strange that people have been saying, uh, experts uh, have been saying that the next recession was going to really be a reckoning for these states. Now, it just so happens that we have the most unusual type of recession, completely unanticipated, and that's in some, in some sense distorting the discussion. But as President Trump himself said, these problems are not a result of the coronavirus. They have been, uh, in Illinois' case, they have been essentially evolving for the last 30 years and other places the last 20 years. Uh, and now you have two states, because it wasn't only Illinois that asked President Trump for $10 billion for their pension system as aid, as virus aid, but also the state of New Jersey did the same. They asked for something different. They asked for guaranteed loans, but they asked for aid, too, this week. Both The governors of both of these states said before all of this began, they've been saying for the last two years that they were not going to reform and reduce benefits in the state. They're not going to work for any kind of a, a way of changing benefits because they're going to pay for the benefits. And, and many of us said that's just impossible. <laughs> it's just way too expensive. And now no sooner does that first giant stock market decline occur, then what do they do? People in the state are going to Washington and saying we need money now. When we come back, I, I want to do a little bit of math and also uh, get your answer to the question. Well, wait a second. If Mitch McConnell is giving them a lifeline and ability to reorganize a la Chrysler or a la Harvey David, uh, Harley Davidson, why wouldn't the governors take it to save themselves? More with Steve Malanga, contributing editor to City Journal, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, right after this.
political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Steve Malanga, contributing editor to the City Journal, about uh, state and local pension problems. Here's what uh, Governor Pritzker had to say yesterday about uh, why he would not support the prospect of being provided an avenue for bankruptcy. The cost of borrowing, the cost of doing business uh, goes way up. Um, the much beyond where uh, we are now, we would be paying interest at usurious rates. Uh, our state would be in a world of hurt. People wouldn't want to do business, in fact, with a state that's gone through bankruptcy. With uh, Steve, uh, point of order uh, on the six billion dollars in unpaid bills Illinois had coming into the pandemic. We were paying 12 percent APR. Illinois has the worst credit rating of any state in the nation in the last 30 years. So you pay a premium to borrow uh, Sopranos rates, as he was suggesting uh, about bankruptcy. Businesses are fleeing this state like it's on fire prior to the pandemic. So if businesses wouldn't want to do a business in a state that is reorganizing its balance sheet or business wouldn't want to do business in a state that behaves the way Illinois does. Right. So you're, you're absolutely right. Essentially, what you've just said is that Illinois is already there. And why not take the option? The reason they won't take the option is, is this, okay? It's a choice. Forgetting about whether we could even create a law that allows states to go bankrupt, we could modify current bankruptcy law to allow units within states, like pension systems, to go bankrupt. It would be similar to what happened with the Puerto Rican bankruptcy, mm-hmm. Puerto Rico bankruptcy. Right. We could do something like that, but this is a choice. And the fact of the matter is that the political leadership of states like Illinois have had the ability to reform themselves for decades. If even two decades ago, under the restrictive measures that Illinois operates under, they had closed down the current systems that just kept them for uh, current employees and started a new kind of you know, 401k-style plan 20 years ago for current employees, they'd be out of this mess. You know, and 20 years ago is... is actually seems pretty recent, you know, for some of us, you know, older folks who've been debating this issue for decades, literally. So they've had the choice. They didn't take the choice. You know, and you ask, well, why wouldn't they take it now? They wouldn't take it now because politically the people who've been elected in the state aren't about to choose this kind of a route because the people who elected them don't want that route. Right, exactly. They're, they're financiers and they're foot soldiers, the people who where they get their political clout. That's right. I mean, they're serving a constituency. And I, I think sometimes people miss that. The other piece of this is well, we do have some recent history of bankruptcy, not just in the private sector, but in the public sector with Detroit. And prior to the outbreak of the virus, I mean, Detroit wasn't pre-China Hong Kong, but it was certainly starting to get on the uptick after its bankruptcy and reorganization of obligations from a half a dozen years ago. Yes. What makes Detroit different is this. Essentially, the governor of Detroit at the time, a Republican, hired a nonpartisan private sector bankruptcy guy to say, look at Detroit, look at all of their bills, look at what's coming in and look at what's going out, including the pensions and the health care benefits for retirees and all of the lending, and you tell me what you think, how do we get out of this? And it was that nonpartisan 
expert who said the only way out of this I see that still leaves the, the city essentially functioning, you know, fiscally, is a bankruptcy proceeding where we basically go through and work out all the debts, including, by the way, to, you know, uh, uh, reforming many of the uh, uh, retiree practices, pension practices. And so the governor was willing to do that, but you don't have a governor right now in this state, in, your, in the state of Illinois, willing to do this, and he doesn't have a law the way the governor of Michigan had a law, which has been passed by the, that, legis that state's legislature, allowing him to do that. So this is, you know, the problem. It's a problem of political will. What McConnell was doing, basically, was saying, stop this nonsense with asking us for bailouts. That's what he was saying by floating the idea of bankruptcy. He's, he's just saying you're not going to get it. You know, that was, that was the political message there. So how are you possibly going to fix the system if you don't, you don't fix it during an 11-year bull market? Uh, you make the point in your piece at the macro level, using New Jersey as an example, paying out $4.5 billion a year in retirement benefits to 104,000 beneficiaries and uh, only uh, getting $2.8 billion in contributions. Um, that is not a model that will work long term. Uh, let me make it uh, granular for you just to comment on this issue of it's the benefit levels. It's not just a matter of um, uh, of you know, mispayments and uh, recessions and all the other cover stories that public sector unions use. Uh, I've got a list of 17,000 Illinois retirees, public sector retirees, whose pension is over $100,000 a year. Just the $100,000 plus club, 17,000. Let me give you George, Den George Denmer, South Suburban College. This is a community college employee who uh, ha uh, is getting $201,000 a year pension, paid $161,000 a year. He re he's re uh, right now 57 years old. He's already been paid out $1.75 million. Uh, that's so he's been retired for several years now. His uh, present net present value pension is valued at six point four million dollars, and he paid two point five percent of that into the system. One sixty one in. He's making two oh one right now as a fifty seven year old on a net present value six point four million dollar pension. Yeah, and here here's the thing about that. Uh, what happened was during the good times specifically, especially in the 90s, and even after 2000, even when the rebound after 2001, 2002, every time the market got good, the unions and their allies said, well, we want you to increase benefits because we should benefit from the market being good. The point is, though, that a defined benefit, pension, is the benefit. Yes. And the idea is that when times are good, you're supposed to bank that money for when times are bad. What they did is they spent that money in benefits, and I did a piece a couple of years ago in a city journal going back to the 90s and showing all the states that raised benefits at the end of the 90s. I mean, it's just all over the place. You know, everybody was doing it. California, that's what sunk them. New Jersey, between 1999 and 2002, they had 13 different benefit increases during that time. So you want to know what sunk people. That's the kind of stuff that sunk people because the political vulnerability is that when the, when the unions went and said, you know, well, we want to share in these good times in the marketplace, they had politicians who were willing to give it to them, and that's not what you're supposed to do with the money in good times. You're supposed to save it for the bad times. He is Steve Malenga. He is a contributing editor to City Journal, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Steve, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. 
My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, uh, Joe Biden is continuing to do his version of Wayne's World from his uh, basement in Delaware. Uh, It's also very much cable access quality, the programming. Joe Biden and uh, Al Gore. Uh, as the audience right now, Al Gore is Garth to Joe's Wayne and uh, Joe Biden trying to remember, you know, what they were talking about. Is it the virus? Is it uh, climate change? Should we go back upstairs? What's happening? We're not organizing and if we don't organize the world. Who organizes it? Who organizes it? And so there's so much, I think. I, uh, anyway, look. I, I one, one, one more question here. Is it too late to address the climate change in a meaningful way? Where's Tia Carrera when you need her? Oof, boy, dopey old men down there uh, doing the Wayne's World show. Uh, not party time. Uh, and meanwhile, when he's uh, not uh, entertaining Al Gore, providing a platform to... Uh, platform climate change off the pandemic crisis. He's coming up with half-baked conspiracy theories. Joe Biden uh, saying at a fundraiser, mark my words, I think he, he is President Trump, I think he is going to try to kick back the election somehow, come up with some rationale why it can't be held. Referencing possible foreign interference as well, Biden said you can be assured between Trump and the Russians, there's going to be an attempt to interfere. I guarantee, I promise you, the Russians did interfere in our election. I guarantee they're going to do it again. Well, yeah, the last part, I know, because they try to interfere in every election. Actually, the news would be if you didn't have an effort to interfere in an American election by the Russians. That's not the accusation. The accusation is that uh, Trump was a co-conspirator and Trump is now serving as Vlad Putin's Manchurian candidate. Uh, that's the conspiracy theory that is without foundation. In fact, uh, all the evidence runs in the contrary direction. But, of course, that doesn't uh, generate any attention from the D.C. press corps. Uh, Joe Biden's uh, uh, very light grasp on the facts as well as his faculties. Uh, During this downtime, if you can't stand watching Joe Biden from his basement, there are better viewing options. One of them, No Safe Spaces. That is the number one political documentary of 2019 put together by our friend Dennis Prager and uh, Adam Carolla that uh, documents how free speech is under attack in America on college campuses, on social media platforms. Dennis Prager knows all about that. And as well as in Hollywood, which uh, essentially blacklisted no safe spaces from the streaming services. But you don't need them because it's available at nosafespaces.com to stream. And for Dan Prof Show listeners, for a limited time, Use the discount code SAVE25 and get 25% off streaming No Safe Spaces. Also, that 25% off price allows you to watch as many times as you want until the end of May, until May 31st. So again, No Safe Spaces, nosafespaces.com. Use the SAVE25 discount code to save 25% off. And uh, watch as many times as you want until the end of May. 
from the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The revolt against the imperious is picking up steam in uh, Michigan. Businesses, two Michigan business owners have filed a lawsuit against Governor Gretchen Whitmer, the Ava Perone of the Midwest, after she imposed one of the most strictest stay-at-home orders in the country, as we've much discussed. We are representing thousands of business owners like us in the state of Michigan, said Chris Welton, co-owner of Welton Lawn Care. It's our peak season, and it's devastating to the entire industry. And on the matter of seeds and other outdoor concerns, uh, remember Whitmer had one of the more uh, notorious invocations of this whole pandemic, which was it's snowing outside, so it won't even matter for a few weeks. Your constitutional rights are subject to the whims of weather systems, according to Whitmer. Uh, And even uh, America's governor, as I understand him to be, Andrew Cuomo, cannot resist the impulse of the adulation he's receiving, what it prompts, the adulation he's receiving from the press corps, and by extension, a uh, easily persuaded public or the portion of it that is. I, I just have to play this again. We talked about it yesterday, but it really can't be played enough. Andrew Cuomo, in response to some actually very good questioning, I wish this reporter, whoever she was, would uh, start making the presidential task force briefings in addition to Cuomo's. A good question and a good follow-up because it exposed Andrew Cuomo for who he really is. The what if the economy failing... Worse than death? Is equals death. Very for, Because no, of mental it, but illness, it the, people, no, it the people stuck at home... No, it doesn't. It doesn't equal death. Economic hardship. Yes, very bad. Not death. Emotional stress from being locked in a house. Very bad. Not death. Uh, um, Domestic violence on the increase. Very bad. Not death. And not death of someone else. See, that's what we have to factor into this equation. Yeah, it's your life. Do whatever you want. But you're not responsible for my life. You have a responsibility to me. It's not just about you. You have a responsibility to me, right? We started here saying, it's not about me, it's about we. Get your head about the, around the we concept. So it's not all about you. It's about me too. It's about we. Right, it takes a village to uh, go to work. And if you do want to go to work, Cuomo's got an answer. Is there a fundamental right to work if the government can't get me the money when I need it? Is there yeah, you a fundamental want to go, right, right you want to, go to, go to work? work? Go take a job as an essential worker. Do it tomorrow. Right? You're working. I am. You're an essential worker. So go take a job as an but, essential worker. But, but the people aren't hiring because of the No, pandemic. there are people hiring. You can get a job as an essential worker. So now you can go to work and you can be an essential worker and you're not going to kill anyone. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Stella Morabito. She's a senior contributor at The Federalist, and she has written on the uh, pandemic panic, magnifying the worst impulses of politicians and other elites 
Uh, I think we just gave two good examples, and she's got a bunch more. Stella, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate uh, that. Yeah, I mean, it's just some really remarkable statements that uh, go past most of the press corps without comment from Andrew Cuomo, from Gretchen Whitmer, and, and others. Oh, yeah, it's the height of arrogance. And it's an attitude, uh, you know, as I say in that piece, that it's a mindset that really goes hand in hand with totalitarianism. I hate to say it, but that's just the fact. I mean, the historical fact where these uh, kinds of attitudes lead. When Cuomo says, you ask, what about the we? I mean, he should look in the mirror. You know, these people are always contradicting themselves, but they push really hard. Well, right. I mean, in Chicago, we have the mayor there uh, in response to how she got a haircut when nobody else can get a haircut. She's the public face of the city. She's different. Um, so she represents the we. So the rules for the we don't apply to the me is, is, is sort of, I guess, how it works. Right. I mean, they're always using this concept of, you know, this collectivist kind of concept to uh, invade individual rights and, and, of course, using whatever opportunity they have to empower themselves. And this, this really, this pandemic has really shown that very clearly, I think, to people uh, in a way that we haven't seen it before. You also uh, point out um, who their uh, targets uh, are and, and in an unrelenting way, in a, in a way that uh, provides no consideration for the alternative viewpoint, for example, with respect to uh, uh, pastors or preachers who are holding services during this time, even services where People are parked in their own cars and just listening to the preacher on their radio. Oh, yeah. One of the examples I mentioned, this was a while back before Easter, but uh, the governor of Indiana basically saying, uh, you know, whether or not uh, people can take communion and how they may take it. And um, and then you have the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky, forbidding people to attend drive-in church services. It's just kind of fascinating that you can anybody can just drive up and get a Big Mac or a Whopper or you know whatever or or go or a drive-through liquor store, but they can't in you know their own congregation where they you know everybody knows who everybody is take communion. It, it's just astonishing the arrogance and the um, really the kind of the megalomania that they feel entitled to practice. You also have, and you point this out, this behavior that presents itself from time to time, and you hate to get into the business of trying to discern motives, so I'm just going to talk about the behavior. The reaction from the press corps to the news this week that there was one study done, reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, that perhaps hydroxychloroquine doesn't hold as much promise for being an antiviral therapy, effective antiviral therapy, as thought from other observational studies. Now, the, the jury is still out, as Dr. Hahn, the FDA commissioner, said. We'll, we'll know at the end of June when these clinical trials are done. And there's so, so there's some countervailing observational studies and anecdotal stories. But the press corps jumped on this in the task force briefing like, see, we told you so. Yay, us. Almost like it was more important that they be right or their skeptic, their general skepticism of Trump, regardless of what he says, be confirmed than it is that we come up with a effective antiviral treatment. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, they want this crisis, which they don't want to go to waste. Right. They want to extend it as long as possible. And yeah, and they, it's like they are hoping for failure. I know you say we shouldn't assign motives. 
but you know, it reaches a certain point where, I mean, like detectives, they're always looking for a motive. You've got to try to figure out what's behind this kind of behavior. And when you look at the behavior, I think it, it does kind of, it, it amounts to power ploys. And, and of course, the, the media, the role of the media as, you know, running cover for uh, a lot of these, what I call power mongers, is just kind of par for the course. Yeah, I mean, I guess if they provide you a written confession, you should take that as evidence of motive. I mean, I, so, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that's fair. I just wonder how you think uh, Trump is pushing back, responding to uh, the media from and, and from the Democrats, you know, coming at him from all quarters during this, wanting to, again, do everything they can to tell the story that it's not Trump's fault that the virus out, the viral outbreak occurred, but it is his fault that the response has been insufficient. That's the narrative. That's the narrative. I mean, they're going to, you know, push this narrative, even though what he's done by, you know, bringing together the private sector and the military. And I mean, what he's done is something that I think only someone who has business acumen uh, could have really caused to happen. Um and, uh, yeah, I mean, they're going to pick at whatever they can. They're going to try to push whatever narrative they can because they do have control over the outlets of most of, you know, 90 percent of the outlets of communication in terms of, you know, the media and uh, pop culture and, uh, you know, academia and all that. That They have, they have had for a long time the, uh, control over that and not, as you mentioned before, really allowing alternative views to be heard. I think that's what really um, – irritates them is about having the press conferences is, you know, having these alternative views brought forth and and to have Trump able to, uh, you know, have a an actual audience uh, that's live. I guess I guess your question is more in terms of the, um, you know, how they manage to get away with that narrative or how I think Trump is doing and pushing back against it. I mean, I'm like a lot of people, you know, sometimes I cringe at some of his tweets. Right. And, uh, but, uh, you know, he's doing what I guess he feels he has to do uh, to uh, get his message out. He, she is Stella Morabito. She's a senior contributor at The Federalist. Uh, her piece, Pandemic Panic, has magnified the worst impulses of the power-hungry elite. Stella, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Take care. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show george mason university economics professor one of the operators of the marginalrevolution.com blog which i recommend gives uh, this review of where he thinks we are as of April 24, 2020. And Tyler Cohen is an interesting thinker. Here's Tyler Cohen. If we keep the economy closed at current levels, it will continue to decay and at some point turn into irreversible nonlinear damage. No one knows when or how to model the course of that process. That decay also will eat into our future public health capacities and perhaps boost hunger and poverty around the world. Topics that we've covered earlier in the show today and previously. Cohen continues, if we keep people locked up at current levels, fewer of them will be exposed to the virus. And in the meantime, we can develop better treatments and also improve tests and trace capabilities. No one knows how quickly those improvements will come 
or how to model the course of that progress process or how much net good they will do. Knowns and unknowns, to borrow a Rumsfeldism. The relative pace of these two processes should determine our best course of action. No one knows the relative pace of either of those two processes. Yet commentators pretend to be increasingly knowledgeable, moralizing based on the pretense of knowledge they do not have. This is where we're at. Well, that's not terribly hopeful, but I would suggest it's pretty, pretty, pretty accurate. And in addition to offering the pretense of knowledge they do not have, there's something else they do. Advanced sentimentality in lieu of substance to attack the president. You know, it's whipping fear. Yes. Engendering pandemonium. Yes. And it's also, you know, inciting the sort of misplaced self-righteousness that uh, people use as a blanket in precarious times. Prime example of that. Chuck Todd. Chuck Todd on NBC, a little roundtable with his friends, had this to say about the lack of national leadership we have. Uh, this is a, an important iteration that speaks to the lack of national leadership. We haven't mourned these deaths as a nation. This death toll is mind boggling. OK, every day, twenty five hundred Americans. And it's a number. The president has not led us in a in, in a in, in some sort of national mourning on this is not. You know, we have so many families that can't. Um, be there to hug this loved one as they go. But there's not, he's not playing, we know that this isn't who he is, but boy, is it really apparent right now that we have no national leader to try to comfort the nation right now. Comfort how, Chuck? If somebody just every night read the names of, of the dead, um, and, and, and some way of honoring them in some national way is, is, is I think, something that a lot of Americans are yearning for anyway. This is something... Um the uh, D.C. press corps and the sentimentalist barbarians that populate it. Chuck Todd, that yapping little terrier, a prime example. This is the thing they do in these times. We look to politics and government where we look to all the time for everything to be our consoler. I want daddy president to make it all better. And I'm not suggesting that we don't mourn the loss of life as a nation. We do. And you know what? We don't need Chuck Todd to tell us to do it. We don't need the president of the United States to tell us to do it any more than we did uh, in other instances where life has been lost on a mass scale. Whether it's a school shooting in the dozens or a concert shooting in the dozens, think Las Vegas, or an attack on our homeland, obviously think 9-11. I mean, it's fine to the extent that uh, a politician as a human being wants to weigh in and provide some considered remarks. It's fine. Um, the idea that that we're looking for and faulting if it doesn't come from politicians just encourages the sort of saccharine response from every politician. I don't need President Trump to recite to me a Hallmark card, and I'm not sure the families of those grieving a lost loved one do either. I think what they want is and what, what, what everybody wants is for political leaders like anybody else to do their jobs, to tell us what they figured out about how to combat the virus, to tell us what they don't know and are trying to figure out and how they're trying to figure out to bring us along. That's how you do it in a free society to uh, take input, to shoulder the in inevitable criticism and just focus on the mission, mission focus. You're not our permanent betters. You're not my permanent representative. You're my temporary one. So for the time that you're in public office, whether in the Oval Office or uh, occupying a congressional seat 
just be the means of good, the best available public policy choices that serve my interests the best that you can. I don't need you to pat me on the head or give me a hug. You know, frankly, I don't know you. Where does consolation really come from for a lost loved one? You know, from other loved ones, friends, family, colleagues. It's just it's just that the whole sophistry of it, not to mention 50,000 is incalculable. And and, uh, I I think it's it's it actually makes it worse when you talk about these numbers. You talk about human lives in in the aggregate. I mean, what did uh, Stalin uh, ghoulishly say? One lost life is a tragedy. A million is a statistic. Those 50,000 become just members of a statistical group rather than individuals. So to Chuck Todd's point, why don't you read the names? Eh, I mean, I, I get what he's I get what he's saying. I'll give him some quarter there. Humanize the loss. That's fine. But um, let's restrain ourselves, too, in terms of understanding this. So, I mean, they they got sick and died. That happens with a, a lot of people and a lot of illnesses to the you know tune of thousands of day in America. I mean, we're, are, are we are we going to extend this metaphor, this war metaphor, to its ridiculous extreme, and treat them like they died in in service to our country in a theater of actual war? Well, listen to Chuck Todd's colleague. By this time next week. We will almost certainly have more people dead from this virus than died in 10, 12 years of the Vietnam War. That's a huge number of Americans, I, I, and we have not seen him grapple with that in a public way. Uh, that's not true. I mean, first of all, just with respect to Trump, I mean, I don't he said uh, he said it 100 times. If he said it once, one life is too many. I, I, I don't know what the standard is that would be acceptable to Chuck Todd and his friends in terms of what constitutes addressing it in a meaningful way. But the the Vietnam comparison, these war metaphors, and people dying of an illness is not the same thing as a particularly the vast majority who are, are older in nursing homes and their lives are just as important as my life or anybody else's life. However, they're received differently, aren't they? Don't we receive differently 60,000, 20-something-year-olds dying in Southeast Asia than we do um, – Thousands of people, tens of thousands of people uh, who are in their 80s and up dying in a nursing home. Do we receive it differently in terms of the promise of that life that was lost? We just do. I mean, do you want to be an adult about it? Do you want to be honest about it? Or do you want to engage in the sort of sentimentality that Chuck Todd does? We just consider it differently, and we should. There's a wall for the fallen in Vietnam because service to our country, even uh, reluctant service, you know, a draft, being drafted into service to our country, putting your life on the line for your country, but also for your, your, your brother in arms in a theater of battle is just different than getting, a vi- getting a infe- an infection when you were in a nursing home or uh, some other venue and succumbing to that illness. I mean, it's just treated differently and it should be treated differently. Vietnam. I mean, you got he's just comparing death totals to give you scale. Yeah, I think they're doing more than that. And it goes to the con- the, the tone of the conversation, which is about mourning and the national mourning that we need to do and reading names aloud like is done on 9-11. It's the same thing. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, I got to admit, my head is spinning a little bit. I don't know whether Harvard University is getting $9 million in CARES Act funding through the Department of Education or not. After the last 48 hours of, uh, I want it back, they're going to give it back. No, we're not going to give it back. We never sent it. That's sort of the summary where we last left off. I'm assuming that President Trump knows whether or not the money was sent and had somebody look into it and finds that it wasn't. And so no nine million bucks for Harvard sporting a forty one billion dollar endowment that uh, and uh, an inability to even uh, use any funding to retain dining hall workers. Um, And their excuse was you have to understand that forty one billion dollar endowment, that's not liquid. You know, a lot of that uh, donor money is given with uh, specific specific uh, requirements in terms of how it can be used or deployed. Uh, about 80 percent, they estimate. Well, as I mentioned yesterday, 20 percent of 40 billion is still 8 billion. So can you lean on uh, uh, that 8 billion potentially or some fraction of that, plus whatever you could scrape up if you pass the hat to through the Harvard Alumni Association so that you're not taking more taxpayer dollars than you've already enjoyed through subsidization of uh, university tuition in this country. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Maureen Callahan, writer and editor for The New York Post, author of the New York Times bestseller, American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century. Maureen, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. So, uh, do you ha- is that is my handle on where that money is or isn't your handle? I don't know where that money is or is not. Um, you know, the situation with our daily presidential press briefings is extremely fluid. Yes. Um, you know, down is up and up is down. But I think the takeaway um, is so clear, and it's something I've been really writing about since the onset of this crisis, which is that the real, the, the truth of the gap between the haves and the have-nots has never been laid bare in such a grotesque, intractable, undeniable way. Harvard University, with an endowment of $40 billion, is the wealthiest university in the nation. As you correctly pointed out, even 20% of that endowment that is liquid is $8 billion. Yet $9 million in federal money in, designed for this crisis to abate and ameliorate the effects of this crisis went to Harvard University, and they were happy to take it until the media began saying, what is going on here? Right, and then and then they they got shamed into saying, we're going to return it. And then they got shamed from the 99 percent of the faculty that are either Warren or Bernie Sanders voters to take it because you're not going to fold in the face of pressure from President Trump. And again, to me, this seems uh, apolitical as an issue. You know, we are going to see the richest of the rich. To me, you know, Jeff Bezos is, is the ultimate example, because when this is all and done, the American economy remade in his image you know retail from big box to department stores to mom and pop is getting destroyed and it will probably never come back again i read an article recently about the department store being dead and buried now 
which which was unthinkable 30 years ago. Um, and, you know, we are going to live in an economy that will be ruled even by a narrower band of the 1%. So now is the time, I think, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, to to really look at who's running the show. It, it, it's the bill. Yeah, I you're, I know. I think that's right. And just to your point, I mean, you're talking about those that per, you, you would think would be the most able to weather the storm. And J.C. Penney's stores closed in March, 85,000 employees furloughed. Its market cap has fallen by three quarters uh, since then in, in a month. Just skipped an interest mm-hmm. payment on its debt. Macy's struggling after closing its stores, furloughing 130,000 workers. Agency, mm-hmm. Rating agency downgrade to junk status. Nordstrom and Kohl's are having a hard time as well. And uh, and that does, says nothing about the Ma and Pa store on Main Street. Right. And, you know, I, I know people I know and, and, and myself, you know, I'm, I'm trying to take real care now to not order through Amazon, you know, to order through my local bookstore, which I really want to be there when all of this is said and done or to order takeout from restaurants where you can't go and sit and have a meal or a drink. Yeah. You know what? I want to pick up there, too. Um, If you're thinking about a future America post COVID-19 or post great American shutdown America, and if it's going to be a much more homogenous, much less interesting. I don't know if that's been addressed straight away, but you seem like the person to do it. More with Maureen Callahan, writer and editor for The New York Post right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Maureen Callahan, writer and editor for the New York Post, author of the New York Times bestseller, American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century. And we were just talking about uh, the uh, potential demise or at minimum remaking of the retail sector post-pandemic. And uh, I, I left the question to you, Maureen, of whether you think uh, if if it does trend in the way you're describing the the economy being remade substantially in the image of Jeff Bezos and Amazon, does that mean a, a more homogenous, less interesting America? In the short term, perhaps. I mean, it's hard to, to envision what the country economically and culturally will look and feel like when this is all over. We don't know how long it's going to last. Um, as it is, you know, most Americans shelter in place very seriously and are ordering uh, online as much as possible for safety and health reasons. Um, and if, if, if the surviving entities are Amazon, Target, Walmart, uh, big grocery stores, Whole Foods, and the smaller um, businesses that give any town or city character and excitement and 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 a, a difference in terms of of just vibe and experience are gone. It's gonna it's gonna feel very desolate for a long time. Um, so, another thing I've been thinking about a lot in terms of what we will look like after this crisis is I think that the culture's relationship to celebrity and celebrities is changing dramatically, and I think it's not it's not looking good for the 
the 1% of, of the celebrity population that is taking to social media or to the airwaves and, uh, you know, telling Americans what to do from their million dollar homes. It is a bad look. And I, I, I feel a, a real, real backlash brewing. Well, it, um, it, speaking of sort of celebrities and in, in part, at least, um, you know, we're talking about cultural institutions, movies, movie theaters, concerts, uh, shows. Uh, Peggy Noonan writing in the Wall Street Journal, imagine an America without the expression, let's go to the movies. And she mentions that, that uh, the COO of AT&T, which owns Warner Brothers, said in an earnings call recently that the studio is rethinking the theatrical model. Imagine not going to see a play or a concert or even a movie and what that would do to change the landscape. It's so interesting you say that about the movies, because much like with department stores, um, you know, it seems like this virus might be killing off entities and uh, and things that were once so, so much a part of our culture. Uh, you know, they were dying off slowly anyway. They were on life support. You know, the movie theater industry has been struggling for a long time. You know, Netflix was was maybe the first um, sort of canary in the coal mine for that. But, you know, I I think when we are done with this, there is going to be a hunger to congregate again. You know, a a, a real hunger. Will we will we congregate? packed like sardines. I mean, I, I recently saw an article about what, what air travel might look like post-COVID-19. And here's a benefit for us lowly flyers. You know, we might get more leg room than yeah. arm room. It's, like, it's going to be like we're flying private. Yeah. Exactly. We're getting a first-class upgrade for an, a, a coach price. Well, small price to pay. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but here's the thing about theaters, and I don't want to get all, you know, wax all nostalgic in my dotage or anything like that, but... Um, but it's it's very much like going to I'll just use another example of the Lyric Opera in Chicago. You know, I'm uh, in my late 40s and I'm, uh, you know, I'm about 20 years below the median age at the Lyric Opera. Um, but, it you know, but that it, it's supported through corporate philanthropy. And you understand how these things are financed. Um, but you don't want that to go away. That's an important cultural institution. And just because people in their 20s, uh, a lot of people in their 20s or 30s might not appreciate it now, they might come to appreciate it and they need to come to appreciate it. And so there, there are certain cultural institutions, and, and I'm as capitalist and free market as they come, that you should ha- that, that we should guard jealously because they're hard to recreate. Oh, I agree completely. You know, I think about the New York Public Library, the main branch on Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street, and that is one of the most gorgeous uh, buildings and places to be in in Manhattan. And, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of work there recently until this happened and the city shut down. And to think of that place as empty, as just completely without a soul in it is, is unthinkable to me. And, and I'm sure for, you know, an opera house, it's the same for you. And, but as you said, most of those places are really propped up by endowments, by billionaires, you know, by funding from the government, taxes. So I do think when this is over, those cultural institutions, I think that we're, we're going to want them more than ever. You know, they, they give us, Something they, they feed our, our souls and our humanity in, in ways that ordering food and, you know, sweat online right now to make ourselves feel better just cannot. I think the hunger will be there. And, you know, 
we we will flock to those those institutes and those artists um, for for solace and and for joy and and I think you know humanity has been through this before. If you've seen any of those photos going around of, of Americans during Spanish flu of 1918, you know, and they're all wearing masks and there are families posed together in photographs and some of them are holding, you know, their pet cats and kittens and the cats are wearing little masks. <laughs> it's just such a great reminder. You know, they didn't have half of the medical interventions and technological interventions we had. You know, I, I think I think it will be fine. Although I wonder what stock they were made of compared to the stock of twenty uh, first century Americans. I think you it know, I think it varies widely. I, 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 it's I, a great question, but you know what, Dan? Humanity survived, so the masks were probably good enough. There you go. She is Maureen Callahan, <laughs> writer and editor for the New York Post and author of the New York Times bestseller American Predator: The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the Twenty First Century. Maureen, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I, I just can't believe more isn't being made of this. This is just as, if not, this is actually more egregious than Harvard, as far as I'm concerned. The uh, newspapers that are getting payroll protection program forgivable loans. I mentioned Axios yesterday, five million bucks. Now you can add the Seattle Times, which received nine point nine million in a PPP forgivable loan. The uh, Tampa Bay newspaper received eight point five million. Uh, its chairman saying the federal government will likely forgive much of the loan. The remaining balance will carry an interest rate of one percent. Yeah, I get it. You know, this is where the Tampa Bay Times, the Seattle Times, Axios, newspapers, media outlets should not be getting taxpayer dollars. They're still operating, number one. And I know other businesses still operate and qualify, but that's just number one. So, I mean, it just guards against the taking aspect of this, uh, mitigates it a little bit. But number two, it's just the fourth estate cannot be a check on the other three estates if they're being financed by them. I, you know, the, the, this this speaks to this phony baloney pretense that there is something no uh, called objectivity in newsrooms. It's very much like Ambrose Beer says of poli- uh, politicians, the uh, politicians or somebody go- going from private life to public life. It's the, uh, uh, the the delusion that private vice becomes public virtue, the delusion that you're not influenced by. I mean, the, these are the same people say, you know, basically you're bought and paid for by whoever contributes to your campaign. And I don't believe that. And I don't necessarily believe even that these news outlets are bought and paid for by the Trump administration. Certainly they'll continue to pound President Trump specifically. 
but they're but they're they're bought and paid. They're they will continue, perhaps even more so, to be bought and paid for by big government. That's who they serve. The politicians come and go. It's the state who they serve. But it used to be okay, fine, fellow travelers, ideological. We need like a Hyde Amendment for PPP. Why should I be funding news outlets that despise me? Why should I be funding any news outlets? It's a categorically different business because of the role a free press plays in a free society. How free can the press be if they can have their strings pulled by the government? It's just a, such a terrible precedent. And I don't know why more people aren't talking about it. It's, and I, again, I have the same position with respect to places of worship, including my own. I don't want my church to take any federal money. The uh, congregants, parishioners of a particular place of worship will have to figure it out. Don't take public money. Don't allow the state in. It undermines the legitimacy and ultimately the operation of institutions that are bulwarks against the state or should be. Unfortunately, the press largely has become an aider and a better. But uh, houses of worship, the faithful have not. This is a serious issue with with respect to precedent being set here that needs more public discussion. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do again on Monday night and have a safe and sane weekend in the interim. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.